Hello, welcome to Beastly Theories. I'm your host, Annie McGrath, and today we have a very special guest that needs very little introduction. It's James Bobo Fay from Finding Bigfoot. How are you, Bobo? What's going on? Good, Annie. I'm good, man. Thank you. Oh, that's awesome. Listen, I am. Um, I'm happy that you've joined us here today. Now we do have a bit of a time differential going on. I'm on ten o'clock, and I I think you're on three. Is it three now? Three in the afternoon for me. Okay, so it's bright and breezy for you. That that's good. Um, now we haven't known each other long, you know, but as a fan of Finding Bigfoot, it does feel as if I've known you for a while. And my opening question for you really is: How do you reconcile things like that? How do you reconcile getting to know people, fans and folks alike, who feel like they know you from TV? Does it complicate the communication, or or do you have some tried and trusted techniques to to bridge the gap between TV Bobo and and the real guy? Um, I wouldn't have any techniques. I mean, I, I totally get it because I'm the same way. Like I've met people that I've watched on TV for uh, you know years and like first name basis with them. You're talking like you know them, and they have no idea who you are. Yeah. So I've been on I've been on both ends and. Um, like Cliff says, if they're a fan of me, there's something wrong with them. Uh. But uh, no, it's cool. Like I, I totally get it. Yeah, I understand. They they do know they do know you. You just don't know them yet. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they've got a picture of you somehow. You know, elements of your personality. Right. But it's hard to it's hard to bridge a starting relationship with somebody you know but haven't met. Right. So it always kind of intrigued me. How do these these guys who've had a big a media presence for a long time how how do they deal with that or how do they you know, put the the people at ease that they're meeting? I'm sure it's not I'm not talking starstruck so much, but just this familiarity without knowledge. It's a strange situation. Yeah, um, I guess I'm a little more I'm a little more standoffish, kind of maybe not standoffish, but just. Uh, how do I want to put it? You're going to edit this, right? And take out the long pauses and ums and ahs? No. No, I keep it all in. <laughs> I keep it all uh, in. That's, that's the real, that's the non-TV bobo. That's what we want. Okay. Um, I forgot what, I was. what was the question again? Just how do you, um, how oh, do you deal that with those, those folks that are, yeah, that, 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 and they feel like they know you, but they don't have the relationship. I, well, I usually, oh, okay, if we're, like, at a Bigfoot conference or something like that, or, you know, any, any, any kind of public gathering where, like, uh-huh. we're, we're featured, I'll, uh, I'll just say, well, who are you? Because they'll start talking to me, like, without introducing themselves, uh-huh. like, almost always, like, because they think, like, we know each other. And I'll be like, uh-huh. first off, you got to tell me who you are. Like, <laughs> who, who are you? Where are you from? You know, I like to know a little bit about them when we start talking. I think that's good. I think that's good. Just just to get in close and personal, at least you can you take the familiarity back from them, right? I mean, that seems to make sense to me. Now, um, obviously, moving past the the TV side of things, you've had lots of jobs. You know, it talks about different jobs that you took in your bio to sort of get near to to Bigfoot locales or where you thought Bigfoot might be. So, and you know. Tell us a little bit about these jobs, and, and do you look back now and see any of these ad hoc careers as a preparatory stage for your TV career? Something that, that really set you up for what you ended up doing? Um, 
kind of be the, as far as helping a TV crew, I mean, helping to see a Bigfoot and helping a TV crew are kind of different jobs. When I did like uh, some roadie stuff for bands or whatever, or, like security, uh, from that, it wasn't the intent, but I met a lot of people that, um, in the entertainment industry and people kind of move around and work in, you know, they might work in music for a while and work in television or film for a while. So through those contacts, um, I was living up in Humboldt, Northern California, and a couple of TV shows came up to film, and they were looking for Bluff Creek, where the Patterson Goodwin film was, and I was like one of the only guys around here that knew where it was. So like, they hired me to come down and you know, like be a unit producer or local fixer, uh-huh. and I would uh, help out that way. And then they'd always be like, "Man, you should you should be working in front of the camera, not behind." And I'd say, "Well, you know, it's not the goal. The, the reason I wanted to do TV." eventually was to get good equipment like good i figured man we could get thermal imagers and have a budget to be out there and which which happened but i didn't factor in the part about making a crappy tv show taking up so much time of (laughs) getting in the way of using those thermals and trying to film a bigfoot yeah i guess there was a lot of i mean um just looking at the equipment that you guys had to take out in order to place yourselves on camera, those big units that you used to wear. Um, it, it seems like it was a, a heavy load to bear while searching for, you know, quite an elusive creature. Oh, the camera backpacks sucked. I, those things just, I couldn't stand them. I mean, no one liked them, but I really hated them. They just, <laughs> like, uh, they just, there's this big arm sticking down in front of you that hooks everything. Uh-huh. Like, so we just stayed on, uh, otherwise I'd be out trail. Like if I'm not on, camera wearing one of those packs and i can do what i want like i'll go off trail a lot more or mm. you know deer trails game trails and not stick to just basically fire roads or you know really maintain trails because a it's hard to see if you're using a thermal because it blinds you and then b that big hook in front of there's any kind of brush hanging out in the way it'll you know it'll pull a branch back and then it releases and it comes slaps you in the face that sort yeah. of stuff <laughs> But I, I get and they then, wanted the reaction. They want they want the face. People want to see that face reaction when something happens. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, it was oh, clearly um, from a, a viewing point of view, it was quite necessary because we're just seeing your faces. But for you, the guys out there doing it, um, it must be quite difficult. I mean, it really leads on to my next question, which was the show. You know, for all of the the different types of opinions about it, it really didn't reinvigorate commercial cryptozoology worldwide. They did show people that there were other people out there wanted to to know about sightings of Bigfoot and unknown animals. So how do you feel about the, the legacy of the show? And were there ever any points when you thought like it wouldn't come off? Oh, it almost fell apart the first pilot. Um, and, uh, it, it does have a legacy for sure. And it did have a role in, uh, you know, as you said, reinvigorating cryptozoology and especially bigfoot because i always said once they discover bigfoot it's going to open the world up the world of cryptozoology up to all sorts of other cryptids uh-huh. but uh, i'm not sure that bigfoot will be the first the first thing discovered i mean there's the like the river serpents and the, the you know sea monsters whatever yeah which seem to yeah. be the same thing. as far as i can tell they're the same thing they're the river and lake serpents and sea serpents are the same ones because these lakes and rivers that have the sightings 
are connected to the ocean with large, viable salmon runs. And salmon yeah. breed up in fresh water, you know, they go up the rivers and creeks and then breed and then come back down and die. And so the these sea serpents, lake serpents, whatever you want to call them, they come, the Native Americans here on the Pacific Northwest, they've all told me, like, yeah, they come in with the, they come, they show up on the salmon show up, they follow the salmon up and they, they're feeding on salmon. And I guess it was the same thing with Loch Ness. Like, you'd know that more, yeah. more about this than me. Like, Loch Ness yeah, got that, they got that new dam. And then once the new dam got put in, they, the Nessie settings just tailed off. I mean, they seem to they pick up and they, they go away. Last year was very, very busy at 13 alleged sightings um, when I investigated just at the, the end of December, which had a pretty decent photograph to go with it. Um, and, of course, there's, you know, there's salmon runs and eel runs and uh, trout all the time. It has like a year-round supply. So, but there are points where it's busier than at other points. And definitely, um, what I actually figured out with Loch Ness I did a sampling of 16 years uh, when there was a lot of rainfall. The lock that there were less salmon numbers, and when there were less salmon numbers, there were less Nessie sightings because the rain sort of drives away the insect production, and the fish eat the insects. And if there's not enough insects, there's less fish. So I made that kind of correlation over 16 years. And every year that had uh, a smaller amount of rainfall and more salmon, more insects and more salmon, there were more Nessie sightings. So it seemed to definitely have some sort of correlation. But, you know, again, it's it's all uh, conjecture <laughs> until we right. find one. Yeah. Right. Well, um, the tribes up here, when I was up in Washington State on the Quinault Reservation, you know, I was up there, this was about 20 years ago, I was up there looking in the Bigfoot stuff. Now, they'd say, well, yeah, they're here, and but right now we're dealing with K, uh, the serpents. Like, what do you mean? They they told me about it, and I was like, really? And they they went behind the uh, fish processing plant. You know, it's just a small building, uh-huh. and for the local tribe, and they showed me these nets. They had these big gill nets. They stretch across the river, and the salmon swim in. And they get stuck by their gills. Well, they had these holes, you know, about I don't know, two, three feet tall, and like foot and a half, two foot wide. I said, yeah, those were all salmon that were eaten out by the serpent. Wow. Had, these guys, these guys are poor. They're not chopping up fifteen hundred dollar nets and piling yeah. up behind the, in the hopes that someday some white guys going to come by asking about Bigfoot and they can show them <laughs> these serpent. And I was picking them up and looking. I was a commercial fisherman, so I know about nets. And they said, "Yeah, that's why you'll never catch one. When you catch one on a rod and reel, it just snaps it right. They got really sharp yeah. teeth, and they're eels, so they can slide, and you know they're very flexible. And so they just eat. They can eat their way out of any net." or snap any type of uh, fishing line, even like a steel leader, they'll just snap it off. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, average size in Loch Ness is between 20 and 40 feet. So it's a very large creature. Very, very, very large. I I mean, at the moment, talking about sea serpents and and other things, there are a lot of different cryptid sightings, not just of Bigfoot, but other things that become popular, like the Mothman, like Dogman. the whole finding of Bigfoot has, has taken place. And do you think that Bigfoot has taken a bit of a backseat now to some of these newer phenomenons that people have become interested in, like Mothman? Like, I hear that's very popular with very young people, or, or Dogman. It seems to be, big, even over here in England, a, a big surge in interest in this Dogman phenomenon. Well, I'm, I'm one of those people that's been 
caught up in the dogman phenomena. I mean, I've been I've been looking into it for several years now, but I really got into it the last couple of years. Then, especially last year, or I guess it's been two years now. Yeah, two years. Um, my booking agent, who uh, Lee Kirkland, oh yes, from Cre- yeah. Creepy People Management, that runs uh, CryptidCon in Kentucky, where I met you actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I met saw, Lee. Nice guy. He saw Dogman when he was 18 years old, walked 50 feet in front of his car in high beam lights. Wow. Just lumber across the road. Then he was the first guy that I that I knew personally, and you know, I've done business with, and known to be a upstanding, cool, sane person. And he, you know, he's the first guy I talked to that I knew and on a personal level that I felt I could really trust and know he's not crazy. Tell me he saw one up close. I mean, I've, I've heard a lot of secondhand stories from people like that the person they were talking to is real credible, but I didn't, you know, I might've met him mm-hmm. once or, but when I heard that, I was like, wow. Cause we used to hear all these things and I gotta, I gotta apologize to, uh, Witnesses that I've talked to in the past told me it had a large snout and big pointy ears on top and big fangs and a muzzle. I'd be like, well, you're mistaking a Bigfoot for a, yeah, whatever you're calling it. Because back then, before the name Dogman came out, people would say werewolves. Yeah, same here. Same and I, I don't think there's any dip. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it seems like there is a difference and not a difference. Uh, a lot of people say like the werewolf is human sized, I guess, is usually mm-hmm. human sized. But these dogmen, I mean, I'm getting reports of them up to 10 foot tall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've heard that too. Have you heard uh, about variations in the, the type of um, uh, anatomical presentation as well? Some said to have wolf like legs, although they're, they're standing um, up on their back, their, their hind legs, and others with more of a, a humanoid physique. Have you heard those two differentiations as well in in, um, in North America? Yeah, and I'm, I'm diving deeper into that myself hmm. because I used to always think, well, under stress and low light conditions, people are, it could be the same exact thing. Yeah. And just different descriptions, you know, or it's all, it's perception, you know, it's all, everything's perception. And I think so too. I think, um, sorry to interrupt you there, but I think sometimes people who, don't recognize what they're seeing. They reach into their mental library of what they do know and pick out something that kind of is similar to it. You hear that with Nessie all the time. You know, I had like a sheep-like head or a camel-like head or a seal-like head, and they don't really mean that. That's just all they can sort of pick out of their, their mental library to describe what they're looking at. And, right. and do you think that could be the case with the dogman, or is it really that different to Bigfoot in its presentation? Um, yeah, I mean, I do think there, well, I do think there is a dog man type phenomena happening and it's definitely picking up steam. But when I was working on, uh, mysterious encounters back in 2003, there was the, the reports for dog man were piling in and even back then. And, uh, wow. when mysterious encounters went to Minnesota, Michigan, up in that at Wisconsin, there was more dogman reports than Bigfoot, but we thought it was all just people lying or more likely just mistook a Bigfoot for a dogman. But now looking back on it, it was like, you know, because we'd say in like a real kind of condescending tone or not, not like, I mean, our thought yeah. process would be like, you poor, poor mistaken person. <laughs> it was a Bigfoot, you know? And the people that don't believe in any of this stuff, it just all seemed extra crazy. Like, 
Oh, yeah. the, the Bigfoot guys were poo poo, and the Dogman guys, but and then um, it, I thought yeah. I thought it was all new, but digging into it more, there's you know historical accounts for Dogman. Of course, and then you go back to the werewolf legends, and they're very similar. Right, but as a werewolf, you have to be bit by one to become one, or something like that. I mean, that's the problem with researching here, and in my particular book, that's why I was trying to focus on recent sightings, not historical or you know, um, ancient sightings, so to speak. Is it's so mixed up with folklore, and mythology, and the supernatural in the way people present it, it's hard to pick those original sightings out of mythology you know something has happened in the local population they've talked about it and they've obviously coming from a, a religious mindset back in those times they've placed a supernatural uh, essence onto it and i think that's something that we do because of our worldview you know um right if we were to find a bigfoot now you know, if you think of the creationists and the materialists, the materialists would say, look, a missing link. And the creationists would say, look, it's a monkey, so there is no missing link. And the worldview would immediately, you know, um, classify that for those people and nothing would sway them. So I, I think I think it's the same with this, this dogman phenomenon. I did write about it. I wrote some a blog called um, Dogman Rebranding the Werewolf. You know, it's always kind of embarrassed to say werewolf now. If you say right. dogman, we can make it a creature again, which I think it is, just some kind of creature, but I don't know what. That's funny. I mean, when you really think about it, dogman's like legitimizing the word werewolf. You know what I mean? Like, mm, it is. It just, it just sounds crazy. And I, mm. I, don't think anything, I don't think there's anything, like a Bigfoot's man-ish, like it's a hominid, whereas dogman, I don't think there's anything man-like about it except it's on two two legs most of the time or and then um but then you start talking about all the different types like type fours type, then i've heard type seven mm. type eight yeah i don't know it, what that is yeah it's kind of I, I then it's like well how many subspecies could be undiscovered you know it's like yeah it seems strange really i mean with with bigfoot around the world I would think for different types, you know, like the Orang Pendic or the Almas or the Sasquatch. Well, okay, I'd think of that like bears, polar bear, you know, brown bear, black bear, moon bear, panda, all bears, very distinctively bears, even though they have different presentations. That's understandable to me. Right. But um, the dogman thing, it was the one thing when somebody first told me about it, dogman, that made me understand how people feel when I talk to them about Bigfoot. <laughs> right. I was like, oh, you sound a bit crazy, and I don't really feel comfortable with this. And then I thought, okay, well, you know, it's a big ask, but you make big asks of people every day when you're presenting this anecdotal evidence, Andy. So consider it, and I've considered it, and it, it doesn't seem to be anything different about the reports these dogman witnesses make other than I find it hard to believe. Nothing different from the Bigfoot reports. I mean, in the sincerity, just right. it's difficult for me to accept. So I've got to kind of examine my, my own prejudice with that, really. Right. And then yeah, there's, I mean, it's just, there's so many rabbit holes you can dive down. And, you mm -hmm. know, I'm still figuring out who's who in the dogman world and, uh, you know, who, who's a good source and, and uh, there's one guy, I can't believe I just forgot his name, but he's done excellent research. I've heard him on, I think I heard him on Crypto PTSD. I just started listening to podcasts this year. Uh -huh. 
I never I never listened to him before that. And because I just I guess because the first couple I heard were people that didn't know what they were talking about. And I'm like, well, uh-huh. why am I gonna listen? Nothing. I can't learn anything from these people because it was Bigfoot stuff, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. And I, I I know all the players really in the Bigfoot world, like you know the main guys. And I was and I, I had personal contact with. I could call them up and ask them questions. So then I'd be like, who are these other guys? You know that are making these bold claims and. Yeah. Have these crazy stories and but uh yeah, i've been diving into the the uh well, i know one name i know from dogman you, you probably know more about this is uh i heard some of his stuff and he seems like he knows what he's talking about is Vic cundiff that's who i was thinking of exactly that person i i listened to a whole bunch of his podcasts and um just with an open mind because i didn't know what to make of it i've included it in my in my own book Beast of britain because there are sightings here so i had to cover them um, their recent sightings, but it's, again, you know, apart from the kind of or listening and uh, reading um, Linda Godfrey's books, you know, somebody like Linda, then you know that that kind of is as much as I know about it, apart from the folklore. And I'm I'm in the dark about the rest. You know, we don't really have you know a whole catalog of footprints and things like you have with Bigfoot and hairs and and viable that there's not really even any viable there's no paddy there's no Patterson Gimlin type footage with dogman is there Dude, no that, that's the thing if these things are a biological evolved you know they've always been here there would be way more evidence that's why I think there's a definite paranormal aspect of these things and then oh, you know I've, I've been I've got notes to, to fill out on this I've been wanting to look into it but I know in the bible like in those prophecies of the of the uh Apocalypse and all that they talk about at the end times, all manner of strange beasts will start, magical beasts will start appearing, you know. Mm. And with what's going on in the world, the end times seems plausible. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it, uh, yeah. it could, yeah. maybe, maybe they are just, uh, oh, sorry. Now that's cool. Yeah, that's neighbor's like. dog and the parakeet yeah. gets going. Um, oh, is that, is that the noise? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, the uh, as far as the dogman, yeah, I mean, like, where's like people talk about finding these giant, like, eight, twelve-inch canine footprints walking bipedally. Mm-hmm. Like, I'd love to see some casts of that, you know. And yeah, which yeah. which also brings me back to the Bigfoot thing when people talk about all the different types of Bigfoots. Well, yeah. I mean, Doctor Meldrum, who I respect to the highest degree, yeah. you know, he, I've I've spoke to him a lot. He's a buddy, you know. And I've I've hung out with him a lot. He's a nice guy. Yeah, and he's he's so smart, and you know he really knows he really knows footprint morphology, and he he has not seen any any viable tracks that aren't five toed. Um, the the same characteristics, it it's the same species, you know. You're talking about a Bigfoot, mm-hmm. which, and then you know you hear these guys talking about, well, these dudes are government agents, and they talk about all the the government has these. All these different kinds of Bigfoots, yeah. Dogman's listed. But I'm always very worried of that kind of stuff. You know, I think yeah. they give the government so much more credit than they deserve for secret activity. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. think, I think they've and got it, better things to be doing than hiding strange creatures from us. Well, then also, like, yeah, I know guys that work in those, in, like, I know some kind of high up people in those worlds, and they all say they, they don't know any, they don't know anything about that yeah. stuff. You know, like, you know, um, a really good friend of mine, good friends with 
uh, General David Petraeus, who oversaw all special forces. Okay. And and he had talked to him about Bigfoot, um, you know, a few times. And, you know, he didn't have some, like, secret knowledge or... And then uh, my, my really good friend, his dad's best friends with Leon Panetta, who's a former director of the CIA over uh-huh. here. And, and they have dinner and stuff like that. And he hasn't had a chance to talk to him like privately yet, but he said, you know, he's really going to try to get to dig into him. So I mean, there's people at the highest level that would, that seems like there'd be more stuff slipping out than just, I uh, so. Yeah, I, I think it's like um, what do you call it? Uh, clickbait, that kind of headline. Right. Government knows, government cover up. I mean, you can, when it comes to cover up and conspiracy, and I believe there are conspiracies out there. Just that we give them too much credit, you know, for being involved in all kinds of conspiracies. There's a big cat phenomenon here in Britain, for example, right. and it's easy to trace it back to the 1970s when we brought in a law called the Dangerous Wild Animals Act. I've spoken to people who let them go. I know a lot of zoos when they had ex- escaped animals like pumas and melanistic leopards, maybe even panthers. They just didn't say anything. Let them go. They thought that would be that. Now we have thousands of sightings nationwide. Now the way the British government deals with that is they don't. They just don't comment. They don't hide it. They don't cover it up. They don't go to any lengths when there's a sighting. When there's a something makes the tabloid papers, it's even better for them because then, you know, people dismiss the tabloids and they just don't say anything. That's the best kind of cover-up you can have, dismissiveness. <laughs> right. You know, and I think most governments are like, they're like, well, yeah, you know, we're not really dealing with that. So we'll leave it to you conspiracy guys to figure it out. And everybody else will think you're nuts. And that's just how right. it works. Um, I wanted to talk about your sighting actually because I, I watching the finding bigfoot program over the years and just as an aside actually i told cliff this when he was on that you guys you actually kept me company on my 6 30 a.m morning commute to london for quite a few years because you know i was walking in i was bored and i just popped the finding bigfoot thing on it was a nice it was a nice little guide in but what i didn't know from the show was that you had a sighting in 2001 yeah, that was Actually, my first one. Mm, now, could, could you tell us about that one to sort of describe the scene, the place, what it looked like, and and maybe add a few of the others on top? Okay, it takes a little bit of... You got a few minutes? Uh, yeah, I've got, got quite a few minutes. Okay. <laughs> I, yeah, I've told this story a ton of times, so if someone's uh, heard this a bunch of times, they can fast okay. forward, I guess, but... I had a friend, John Freitas, who I actually had never met in person. We just contacted each other. I contacted him over email. He was in the San Francisco Chronicle, which is the biggest paper in Northern California. And they had a couple articles on him in there, like back in 96 and 98. So um, I actually got an email just to contact him. So that's when I got my first email account. And so we'd corresponded a little bit. We were going to try to hook up a Whenever he was doing like his little expeditions, like weekend trips and stuff into the mountains, I was I was commercial fishing, so I I just would we never I have a lot I'd have you know uh, I'd work a lot through like certain seasons, and then I'd have like you know a month off or two months off between you know say crab and shrimp or whatever salmon. Uh-huh. So, anyways, I I was he, I was talking to him one day, 
and I was out in the mountains and I had, this is back in 2001 when cell phones were really junk up here. Like the reception was terrible. And I was talking to him and, and I thought, I heard him say there had been a sighting and I was uh -huh. like a Bigfoot sighting. And I was, and it was an area that I was very familiar with up uh, behind Redwood National Park in the Bald Hills on Johnson Road. And I was like, oh, my God, I know that area so well. I've logged up in there. I've gone squatching there tons of times. i got friends that live out there. And I'm like, and he started describing the place. I knew exactly what he was, I knew exactly where he meant. Uh -huh. And I was like, oh, my God, i got to get up there. And my buddy had a Gen 2 Ukrainian um, night scope. Well, this is what led up to the setting. My, my first for sure, where I knew for sure it was a Bigfoot encounter, led into five days later. My, I think I'll pause, I'm almost positive the same, seeing the same one. Uh -huh. um, five nights later with my buddy. So I had this encounter five nights before, but when that was on the 21st, May 21st, 2001, mm -hmm. I was doing calls. I, before I blew my vocal cords out, I used to do the loudest, the loudest Bigfoot calls anyone's ever heard. I could nail them too. I could, I could uh, really sound like one. But uh -huh. I, I'd never heard one, but I just naturally did, one, did that call. And I was doing these calls and roaring. And I, I mean, I was way far from the river, but you could the Klamath River. And I was due west of the Patterson Glen film site pretty much. And uh -huh. I could, uh, maybe a little southwest, but west of there, across the river. And it was echoing all the way down to the Klamath, which was a few miles away. And I was like, man, my calls are really carrying. And the story I got was that at this point, um, earlier that day, or the, but that, sorry, the day before, this Indian woman had been driving down to the village down at the end of the road, and a Bigfoot walks across the road in front of her, and she wow. thought it was a female maybe, and it was carrying a rolled up piece of cardboard, like into a tube shape, it was rolled up like a tube, huh. and then it also had a like a like a blue child sweater it was dragging with its other hand. And it walked right in front of her and just walked off into the woods. And I was like, oh, my God, I got to get up there. And I brought my buddy's night scope. And it was my first night having real night vision. And it was a piece wow. of garbage, you know, it was looking, <laughs> looking back on it. I mean, it worked enough to see a little bit. But yeah, but I was excited because it was the best thing I'd ever used. And I went up there and I was doing my calls and this and that. And I started hearing this. I thought it was a wolf hybrid howling north of me. Uh -huh. And the road, I'm on a coastal ridgeline. So it runs due north-south, and to the west, on the top of that ridgeline is the boundary for Redwood National Park. So at the top of the ridge are these 300-foot old-growth redwoods, and then two feet away, it started into a clear-cut. Uh -huh. So I was in this clear-cut up there. Um, God, I just mixed it up. I, I jumped ahead of the sighting location. Anyways. No, no, that's cool. So when we went back, I went back the next night. I had this crazy encounter. I'll tell that some other time, I guess. But I had a crazy encounter. It's still the gnarliest thing that's ever happened to me. And my, uh -huh. if I were to have an audio recording running at this for this, it would have been, it'd be right up there with Sierra sounds. Wow. It, I think it was. I think it was for a variety of sounds. I honestly think it was better than the Sierra sounds as far as like not talking, because I didn't hear. I didn't really hear much talking. It was more just crazy animalistic roars and howls and flapping lips and giant exhales and wow. um like close very close uh well i was yeah i'd say it was all within 70 yards that's close 
Yeah, and the closest maybe 45, 50 yards. Or the, but then, so but when I first heard the calling come, because it took it 45 minutes to get down from when I first heard it to come down to where I was. So I knew it was a few miles north. So I went back the next night, and after having the living daylight scared out of me, like the most scared I ever was in my life, I went back the next night, and that was freaky for sure, going back to the same spot. And, and you're I, alone now. Then you're by yourself, right? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Because no one, I didn't have anyone to go with back then. I'd, I'd ask people to go, and people always said they wanted to go, but almost no one would go. There was a couple guys that would go with me once in a while, but for the most part, it was it was always just me alone, which now I, I, I mean, I still go out alone, but uh, I way prefer going with someone. A, it's more yeah. fun, and B, you're never a lot of times I'm not sure exactly what I heard, so I want someone there to yeah. verify what I heard or direction. Because yeah. I've noticed um, my a lot of times my sense of direction for audio, like where I the sound came from, like I'll be off. Like sometimes like 180 degrees. Like didn't it come that way? And Cliff will be like, yeah. no, it came came from that way. And I'll be like, what? You know, Cliff's got those musicians' ears. Exactly. Yeah. So God, I'm kind of bad when I'm getting wandering all over the place. So for my sighting, so we went, uh, so nothing happened my second night out. Like, and I was out there all night. And man, I got to say, that was one of the scariest times of my life, being out in that same meadow where I just had the living daylight scared over the night before, <laughs> to be out there again, like banging on trees. But you know, I had a, a vibe that nothing was going to happen, that yeah. they weren't around, and nothing did happen. So then when John Freitas and a couple of this other cop, and then another guy, Manny, um, came up there five nights later. I said, well, there's nothing here. Cause I, I went back to not just one night. I went back to the same spot, probably three nights out of the next four. But on the fifth night, those guys came, I said, Hey, well, it started North. Let's go up there. So we went up, we found a great spot to set up the call blaster, you know, the big speaker uh-huh. and play sounds and went right over the river. And there was a clear cut on both sides of the road. Cause the ridge line, we were on the east side of the ridge line. It was a north-south running ridge. And about 200 yards up was the park boundary line where the old-growth redwoods were at the peak of the summit. And then dropping down below was clear-cut for another 100-something yards, 150 yards to okay, a... That's a good spot. Yeah, to a, to a cliff. And it dropped off like about 2,000 foot down to the Klamath River. So we went up there and we said, yes, this sounds about, this sounds about right for how far it was from where it was four miles down the road or something. I said, this is about where it sounds like it came from. So we set up and then right, right when we started, we get this loud, just definite squash scream come from down in the river valley. Wow. And then not long after that, John was, uh, he was kind of a big name in the, in the Bigfoot world. Then, you know, it was, it was a much smaller place for everyone. Everyone really knew everyone back then. And he, you know, he'd been in the, papers and on, on television for it so he was kind of a known guy and he was doing the jeff rents remember jeff rents on that show sightings the radio show sightings no i don't remember that it was at that point it was like the seventh biggest uh radio broadcast in the world and he was kind of like the poor man's art bell and he okay. I think he had yeah, like 9 million live listeners or something like that. That's, that's pretty decent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he was big time. And John yeah. was doing a live remote broadcast. And um, I don't know if it, I think they, they had, yeah, they had sent him a bag phone, like the old cell phone bag phone. Remember, like the 
There's like a little shoe box with a oh yeah big yeah. Uh, big cell phone inside it, and he had one of those, and he was in a convertible, and he was on that main road, the dirt logging road, Johnson's Road, and he was driving really slow, trying to get to a sweet spot where the reception would. He was trying to get two bars, <laughs> so he found a spot. And he stopped right next to our trucks. And uh, let me paint the picture for you. When you're driving north on this road and you're coming into the clear cut, you're driving in on your left hand, your right hand side, which is going downhill to the river. Okay. It's all pecker poles, like just regrowth, like it had been clear cut not too long before, like, uh-huh. you know, maybe, I don't know, seven, eight years before, something like that, 10 years. It was, you know, it's just little pecker poles, like little four, six inch trees. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, in, diameter and on the left side it was clear cut all the way up to this the park boundary which is like another 150 200 yards up there something like that and so as you drive in you got about a 50 yard stretch of pecker poles on your right clear cut on your left and then the pecker poles stop and you go into all clear cut on both sides for another 70 80 yards something like that 100 yards and in that uh there was a strip of older tree older you know old trees that were kind of went through the middle of the clear cut like at an angle went cut across like a 45 degree angle or so going up mm-hmm. to the next patch of trees and that turned out to be it was a historical site it was the old hoopa indian uh trail from the valley to the coast which had been being used for some estimates or thirty thousand years that was the the way they traveled to the coast to trade with the coastal indians from the, the indians from the valley okay and um, they're not allowed to cut it. So these, John started hearing, um, so he started driving back down south and he drove next to, and our trucks, my friend uh, was parked right on the corner of those pecker poles, like where the clear cut started. So we, we were parked, we had both our cars parked up there and we set up a little fire and we cooked some abalone. He'd got some abalone that day from diving down in Trinidad. So we cooked some abalone put the smell out there and we wrapped the abalone in um, some tinfoil and I put it on the roof of my truck because I didn't want a bear because there's so many bears out there and I've had stuff thrashed by the bears. So I put it on top so the bears wouldn't get inside the truck. Uh-huh. And I also thought, well, if a Bigfoot comes, you can try to grab it. And John stopped next to our car. Our, we had two Toyota trucks parked there along the side of the road on the, on the uh, east side of the road. And he goes, all of a sudden he starts going, Man, I'm getting growled at. I'm like, I'm like huh. really? He goes, yeah. There's a bear and it's stomping its feet at me. And he goes, man, it's a big bear and it's got a, you know, it's got an aggressive growl. And, and then we're like listening and we're looking down the, the. What happened was I skipped this part of the story. Was I'd forgotten in my haste and excitement, I'd forgotten that night scope on my front porch oh. when I went up there. So I called my buddy E H, and. Said E H A. I knew he was going to go surfing up north, and he had to drive. Kind of, it was still like forty-five minutes out of the way. But I was like, "Hey, man, can you bring that night scope for me, please?" And you know, we'll do a little squatching. You can hang out and check it out for a little. I was like, "Yeah, I'll check it out." He never gone bigfooting before. Never gave it any thought. Came up, brought my night scope. Him and I, and we were looking at the setup, and I said, "Manny, set up on the east side of the road, also in the middle of the clear cut." to do the broadcast calls. John was in his car, his little Sebring convertible, driving south, uh, 
talking to Jeff Rance, and then so I said, well, I said I was looking all around. I said, Eric, I said, hey, there's a great spot up the hill, just about 70 yards up. There was this big um, stump, and these these were old growth redwoods that have been logged. So the stumps are giant. So I said that place looks perfect. So we went up on that stump. We we're looking around, and then John had the growling going on down below it where the trucks were in his car. And we're looking down there, looking down there. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at the trucks, and there was a big burnt-out black stump, like a big giant redwood stump. And I'm like, how did I not see that giant stump next to our cars? Like, I remember thinking that, like, you know, because we were looking at it for about 10 minutes and nothing, nothing. And all of a sudden, that stump stands up and walks into the tree line. Wow. Yeah, it was just right there, like right not more than 25 feet from John, but he couldn't see because it, it was a really dark night. And I watched it. I was like, oh, my God. And I watched it go off on two legs. It definitely was bipedal. Wow. And we were watching. And then we heard three. God, I might be messing up the sequence now. It was before or after we saw it. We heard like, oh, oh, oh. But I'm not doing it. It was, I call them grunt growls. Like, it's like a grunt that goes yeah, into a growl. Yeah. And they, they do, I mean, bears do it. There's other animals that do it. But this was, it was so loud and so powerful. And I'd heard that five nights earlier during my crazy, kind of <laughs> heard all the crazy sounds. I heard that same grunt growl sound. And it sounded the exact same. Like, and seeing how big this thing was. I'm, I'm, how big and, do you think it was? Well, it walked down. It popped down about 50 yards down. Um, so the, 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 those pecker poles ran um east west heading down the hill and then north south along the road on the east side of the road then heads due east down uh that that line and so we're watching all around all around and then i see the thing pop out and it comes out right where the the hoopa trail the coastal trail the indian trail the footpath uh-huh. that's where it popped out it popped out right through the edge of that and it was kind of bobbing up and down like a giant monkey you know like going from one foot to the other and raising its arms up. And Eric and I are passing the scope back on it. Dude, are you seeing what I'm seeing? He's like, yeah. It, looked, it just looked like a giant stump with a coconut on top of its head. But its wow. shoulders were so broad. And then when it would turn sideways and walk, it would walk uh, back and forth to this behind a stump to behind a tree, one of the bigger trees. And we're like, wow. And we would stand behind the stump. The stump came right between its belly button and its uh, chest. Wow. And we're going, well, that's probably a four-foot stump. And so he's probably – he's three foot taller than that, so he's got to be at least seven foot, but like four mm. foot across the shoulders. Because I saw him when he was by the trucks. His shoulders had to be four foot across, four and a half feet wow. across. And when he turned sideways from the front of his chest to the back of his chest, was a, I mean, from the front of his chest to his back, it had to be about three foot solid going through that way. I mean – In depth? Yeah. Wow. It was it was massive. I mean, this thing, there's no way it weighed less than 1,200 pounds. And I, I'd wow. honestly guess this thing it weighed 1,500, maybe up to 1,700, 1,800. Wow. And uh, John found one of its footprints later on. And it was 17 and three-quarter inches, Goodness. nine and a half across the ball. And it was sunk into this hard – like our Toyota trucks barely that's a scratch. You know, it was hard pan, dried out dirt. And our trucks, like me walking in my logging boots, you know, back when I was probably about 250 or something. Uh-huh. And I, I, I wasn't even leaving a trace. And this thing, its footprint was pressed in anywhere from three-quarter inch to a 
quarter inch wow. in different spots. So I mean, and, and what what is your height? Are you six six five six six? No, no, no. Back then, I was about six four. Ah, okay. <laughs> and I went. You were you were uh, you were heavy. You were heavy built anyway, weren't you? Um, well, I was. I was in better shape back then. Yeah. I wasn't so fat. I was like you know I was surfing and logging and. That's what pitching. I meant by heavy build. Sorry, that I wasn't politely saying fat, but you were you were quite fit when you were younger as well. I know you're you're quite slim now, but also tall. But I'm not a tall person. I'm only five nine, so <laughs> I'm not I've a lost, good judge. I've one. lost about an inch. I had a, a bad surfing accident where I fell. I got pitched about the guys on the beach that looked to be probably about 45 feet. I landed on my head with the wave on top of me on a sandbar and oh. impacted my spine and got a little spinal compression fracture and herniated some discs. That's um, that's definitely very harsh. But with, with this whole thing that you saw, with um, especially with the um, when it made its way back out to the Indian trade trail, and with the night scope, you could see this um, you know, the gesticulating with this um, monkey-like behavior, this ape-like behavior. What do you think with your study now? What do you think it was trying to do to, with, with you guys? Do you think it was like a uh, an intimidation it was like a bluff it was trying to get rid of you without having to take um action or was this some sort of territorial um I, interaction I think, it, I think it was just really agitated and stressed because uh -huh. manny kept blasting the calls and we had these uh -huh. aggressive gorilla calls playing okay and they were like african lowland gorilla aggressive calls like when they challenge each other yeah. territorial calls and and this thing was loud I mean, really loud. And Manny kept hitting because Johnson. Every time I hit my brakes, play the play the recording again, and I was telling him like, "Hey, stop, stop!" You know, like it's already here. Don't keep doing it. And it seemed to, to just agitate it. But it would walk back and forth, and it never dropped down to all fours. It was always on two legs, and uh. and then it would it would go behind a tree, and I'd, and it had a little uh, laser uh, infrared light. Well, not laser, but just infrared pen light built into the scope. So you could turn it on and like look at the ground and see better if it was really dark. So every time I flipped on that light, go behind this. We thought it was um, a much smaller tree, but it turned out to be about an 18 inch across, uh, 18 inch circum uh, diameter tree. But it would stand behind that when I turned on the pen light with the, and pointed it at it, even though the light uh -huh. wasn't illuminating. It was, we were about 120 yards away, even though but we it, weren't. It never attempted to get any closer to you at any point. No, no, but it would stand behind the tree like an ostrich with its head in the ground because its shoulders stuck out a foot and a half each side of this tree. <laughs> but its head, then it would poke its head out, and if the red light was still on, it would stick its head back behind the tree like, like we couldn't see it. But the only thing hidden was its head and like uh -huh. that narrow part of the middle of its body, but with both shoulders and arms hanging out. Almost childlike, I guess, you know, in the, in the sense yeah. of this, this weird tree peeking thing. I've often wondered a lot about the, the tree peeking thing and, and level of intelligence. So what, what do you think about, about the standard level of intelligence of, of this species? See, I've always said I think these things are kind of like idiot savant Jedi ninjas. <laughs> like they're, they're, they're so specialized. Yeah. I mean, like they're, they're not building rockets and suspension yeah. bridges and grand architecture like you know they, they do what they do they're they're they gotta well um their brains actually even though their head's giant their brain's probably not as big as ours 
And that's from Dr. Meldrum's uh, study of the PG film and some other stuff. Oh, yeah. And Australopithecus. And knowing, seeing, like, the way their head sits, how it sits so low, and the, like, how it looks like it has no neck. That, that the brainstem goes up so high into it that it takes up a lot of the room. And then the giant muscles it takes for the uh, jaw and all this, it's, mm-hmm. its cranial capacity is probably smaller than ours by maybe a third. So they're okay. smart, but they're smart in a different way. Like, their whole life, their whole intelligence is devoted to A, feeding, and B, avoiding humans. Uh-huh. Their, their entire lifestyle is like, like a moneymaker told me this one, and it's, I think it's a great analogy. Their whole life is spent like a down fighter pilot behind enemy lines. Okay, yeah. yeah. You're, you're always on your toes. You're always, you're, they, live, they live kind of like a, almost like a paranoid lifestyle. Yeah, evasion at all costs. I've heard lots of um, stories about uh, examinations of footprint print trails where people can actually see that they've they've you know, walked five or six paces, then turned to look behind them, and then walked five or six paces more and turned again. And it seems to be like a repetitive action to constantly check what's behind them as as they're moving, yeah, as they're moving away from uh, wherever they are. And that, that seems to make a lot of sense to me in regards to why we can't find them. Now, you know, obviously, I know that's a, an easy get-out-of-jail card to say, well, it's because they're so stealthy and, and they stay away from us. But something's primarily nocturnal, and I know I'm preaching to the converted here, but it just stands to reason that you wouldn't see it. Now, most of us aren't out there in the woods at night. The woods aren't lit up. There are no streetlights, are there? So oh. you know, what's your what's your view on on why we can't find them? Do you think it's for lack of scientific effort? Or just because of the the the, um, uh, the evasive nature of the animal itself. Um, I I I think it's a combination. I mean, if we dedicated the U.S. military to getting us a Bigfoot body, it wouldn't take long. Uh-huh. Like it'd be it'd be quick. I think, uh, assuming they're not paranormal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And which makes me want, you know, I still I go all over the place, and I'm like. I've had my own weird experiences with that, and there's. It just seems when you see how big they are, and I've had mm. so many encounters with them. I mean, I haven't had a lot of sightings, but I've had a lot of encounters where I've heard them, and it's just something that big. How it's still undiscovered by science is just hard to comprehend, really. It is. It is. But you've got a lot of space there, haven't you? I mean. I, I flew all around, uh, well, in many parts of the U.S. When, when just before we met, I, I think I was on flight seven by the time I got to Kentucky uh, in September last year. And one of the things that really impressed me in lots of different places, I didn't expect to be so wild. It was the, the you know the woodland and the forest and swamps stretching out for and ever, ever and ever. And some of these places I visited, I just couldn't see anything but forest on and on and on. And I thought, well, who's out there in the middle of the night with a flashlight? You know, not many people. A few hunters here and there, but it's easy to tell when hunters are coming, right? And then they get the flashlights and the guns. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's your living room. You know, and, you know when and they stick. Inside. And humans stick to trails and roads. They're not. Mm. They're not. I mean, out like where the PG film was gotten, the Patterson Moon film. You get out in Bluff Creek, out there, Slate Creek, and all that. It is so rugged, and. It's just, it's just gnarly, you know. I mean, they're not. There's no one out there that's. There, there's barely anyone out there 
uh, where I got some of my best tips where to go squatching was from when they had this thing called the spotted owl. It was an endangered species, and they had, the government had they shut down a bunch of logging, and they had a lot of uh, uh, biologists doing surveys trying to count them and this and that. And they'd go out, they'd have to go out at night with rat uh, with mice and do owl calls. And as you know, Bigfoots use owl calls all the time to communicate with uh-huh. each other. So they'd go out and do owl calls and hike to these remote places and and hold up mice on their gloved hand for a owl to come down and take it so they could count them and those people had quite a few encounters because they were do- i think it was the fact they were doing owl calls in like uh-huh. remote locations and then hunters hey you're not allowed to hunt at night unless in california you can't hunt at night at all but in some parts of the u.s you can hunt raccoons at night but um out here you can't hunt at night so there, are, there aren't hunters out walking around at night there they'll be walking okay. back to camp after sunset or they'll be walking in the dark that's when hunters have hunters have almost all their encounters going to the tree stand or back uh-huh. um, when the lo- low light level low level light conditions. So and there's really not. I mean, there's no one. I mean, it's just us guys with barely any equipment exactly. and just a- amateurs just out trying to get like that chance shot, which is That's possible. That's the thing. And. and I, how many of us, right? They're looking. There was a, a question I wanted to to ask you about this actually. In the UK, so the with the, the although it's lesser known, there's lots of British Bigfoot sightings. Nothing like North America, but in the hundreds anyway. Um, over about forty years or so, they've been collected. Now, what I noticed about ninety eight percent of these sightings, as a rough figure, is nearly all of them were accidental, and they were seen by people who weren't looking for for Bigfoot, didn't know about it. They were either driving somewhere or they were walking their dog or, you know, taking a little stroll through the woods and they saw something. Um, only 2% as a rough estimate were people that were out there looking for something like Bigfoot and thought that they saw it. Do you think, does that exist in, in North America as well, that phenomena of um, the accidental witness? And if it does, do you think it's because, you know, searching looks like hunting and that drives these animals away from you? Um, well, I, uh, even out here with all the people looking for Bigfoot, 99.99% of all sightings are still accidental. Mm. And Bigfoot, Bigfooters rarely see them. I mean, and I'm suspicious of the guys that see, I mean, I've been out in the field for 30 years and I've gotten yeah. six glimpses, you know, and I've got, well, I got one daylight glimpse for like literally like less than a half second. Mm-hmm. And then I've had nighttime uh, visuals. Which gives me hope, though, because I know with the good equipment that it's possible to get the footage. I mean, we've, we've been right on top of them. I mean, uh, Clip and I have had a couple of times where if we had good therm, we'd have, it'd be a case-closed video, you know. And uh, one time I was with Bart, and we had a really junky first-gen uh, therm, you know, like 120 by 180 or 120 by 160 resolution. The thing was a couple hundred yards away, and it's just it's. And we didn't have a recorder. Didn't even have a recorder uh, built into it. We watched that thing with with the stuff we have now. That would you know that thing was about nine foot. We would have had great footage. I mean, there's been that's several amazing. times. Yeah, there's been several times I could have got great. But that's over thirty years. You know, a, a handful of times. Yeah, I'm. Um, and and what do you think? I mean, you must have been asked this before quite a few times. 
But what do you think of the um, you know, the Red Circle tribe of um? Oh, yeah. Scotch is that? Uh, I I don't pay attention to it too much. I mean, mm. if there's more than one, especially, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Then yeah. uh, we have a guy that does analysis for us on that stuff, and almost every time, and he's looked at lots of them. Yeah. Every time it's vegetation. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, a pareidolia, right? I mean, it's um, yeah. So come on. I once I was so fed up receiving these pictures at, at one point about a year and a half ago. I actually I was taking a walk along the Thames where it was very sort of woody and sort of uh, you know uh, there were no houses houses around or anything, and I just took a picture of um, there was a shot of the Thames and there were some lovely trees and forests on the other side. And I put some red circles on it, and I said, in this picture, uh, Lake Monster submerged two dog men and a juvenile Bigfoot. And the amount of people that said that they could see it was quite disturbing. Right. <laughs> and it was just a snap. It was for a joke. It was like to make a point, like, you know, this is ridiculous. And uh, some people then wrote in and, and said, well, look, Andy, you know, we um, were a bit concerned that you're posting pictures like this. I thought it was a serious thing. I said, look. I should have qualified one. This is a joke. I'm saying, come on, let's be serious. We can't. Uh, Jeff Meldrum, actually, when I saw him speak at last year's International Cryptozoology Conference, we had a little chat at dinner afterwards. What he said in his 50 years of Panny uh, speech was, any, this is disputed, even though it's never been disproven, it's disputed. And any evidence that's less than this is no evidence at all. Right. Because if that's the quality that you can dispute, you know, uh, making out a bit of a face in the bush is nothing at all. You know, we, we can't, um, it's inadmissible, they'd say. Um, and that, that's my feeling on it. Uh, just just quickly, um, you know, you've had a few nerve-wracking encounters out there in, in the forest, in the woods. Would you consider these animals inherently dangerous? Or do you think it's just like a bear or anything else, or a gorilla? You know, if you meet the right individual at the wrong time, and that's the um, you'd have that issue. I, I think they're much more dangerous than gorillas. I think they're more probably on par with chimpanzees, or, or maybe not that dangerous. Somewhere in between gorilla and chimp, mm. because uh, I think if if they're really really after you, you're not. You're just you got no. I don't care if you got what gun you got. Uh -huh. if, if they if they want you, you're just gone. Well, I, I had a. I don't know how you feel about this stuff. People call it the woo. And yeah. I, I totally, totally state from the get-go that it could, it, it could be a totally natural phenomenon like your, your own brain causing this. You know, like, uh, I've, uh -huh. I had a couple scientists tell me, well, your brain could make, make you think you're hearing a, a voice in your head because um, if you were around a Bigfoot and it uh, released a pheromone, and our, we've evolved next to these things, and that pheromone means like grave danger to us, like uh -huh. it's inherently in us, that your brain might put words in your head like, get out of here, or something like that, yeah. you know? Yeah, but, they uh, have that I, with the, the big gray man of Ben McDuit. People feel like they've been told to jump off the mountain and, and things like that. Oh, yeah, uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I definitely heard, when I had that encounter that first scary night, five nights before my first sighting, when the thing came up behind me in the bushes and started growling, I'm, uh, this is when I'm makes me think they have infrasound, but it could totally be the pheromone thing mm -hmm. or just my fear of how deep the growl was. 
but I, I think it, I think it has some kind of infrasound something. But I went, I was so scared. I was like, don't be a, you know, you can't be a pussy now. You got to turn around and take this picture. Because <laughs> I had a disposable camera. I'm like, all right, Bobs, you're going to turn around and snap its picture. And, you know, we'll see, see what happens. Yeah. And as soon as I, I picked up the camera and I was pushing the, the flash button, it was a disposable, like, cardboard one, 35 uh-huh. millimeter. And just as I was getting ready to turn around, I heard very clear voice in my head say, if you turn around and try to take my picture, I'm going to kill you and no one's ever going to find your body. Wow. Uh, was it and, as clear as crystal, just like a voice? Dude, yeah. And I had that happen two other times, three other That's times. Yeah, one, once was in, which, funny enough, I was in Tom Powell's backyard, sleeping out on the grass with Cliff. This is before the show started. And, uh, you know, Tom Powell's the big uh, king of the woo for Bigfoot stuff, you know, basically. Yeah. Yeah, paranormal, paranormal aspects, which I, 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 he very well could, he could be completely right, you know. And but I heard one that night. We went out and we're doing. I was just my like, antagonizing, like my uh, aggressive gorilla grunting, like territorial call. I was doing that, uh-huh. and we went back to Tom's house about three in the morning after hiking around this like six mile loop that he'd do at night, and. Uh, about 100 yards down the tree line coming up the back of his from his neighbor's property, I heard a big snap, like an intentional branch break. And all the hair in my body went up, and I Gosh. knew what it was. And then about a minute later, about 50 yards down, was another big snap. I mean, it was loud. I couldn't believe the neighbors didn't get woken up because they're only small five-acre pieces, uh-huh. five-acre parcels. And then about 30 seconds after that or a minute after that, whatever it was, there was a huge crack right behind us, directly behind us in the tree line. And right then I got this loud voice in my head, we're here. And I even had like a visual image of three Bigfoots in the in the um, woods. And I, I didn't hear about this until years later, but the couple of times I, I had like those voices, it sounds so nuts, when I had like the voice in my head, mm-hmm. you know, it, uh, it kind of, a few of the times I, there was like a mental image came with it of who was sending the message, huh. which is totally, I'm not saying like Bigfoots were telepathically no. talking to me. They might've, but they may have been, but it could, it's also very likely that it could have just been my brain causing, you know, you know I, I think it's very possible. I mean, I, I was talking to somebody about the, the woo thing here and I, I always default to sort of, um, to, to natural biological phenomena first. So um, infrasound, you know, we know that tigers use that to stun their prey sometimes bef- before they pounce. And this immobility, you know, that they have, some people have attributed that obviously to Bigfoot as well. And there's been tales, I know the Yowie hunters, <clears throat> uh, Dean and Paul Harrison, over there, they, they had some Aboriginal uh, witness on one of their shows one time. They do that great podcast, you know, where people call in with their sightings or the interview people, the very police, sort of police questioning kind of style. And uh, this Aboriginal guy who was out with his uncle and father was talking about um, seeing some deer down in the corral sort of running around in circles, being very panicked. And suddenly all three of them felt really terrified. And then they saw this. Bigfoot, this Yowie, and um, 
it wasn't commented upon in the show, but immediately, immediately to me, I thought perhaps this is that infrasound effect. It gives you, it moves your organs around, you know, it gives you this sense of fear. And then perhaps whatever then we envisage or we imagine after that is what the voice is, you know, because your instincts say, Bobo, get out of here. And um, right. that's the effect of what this sound is doing to your body. I had a, I've not had any real things I would class as experiences in this um, in this search, but it, it did have something strange happen to me when I was walking up the Alton Creche in, um, I told Cliff about this too, in Scotland recently when I was in Loch Ness. And I'd been up there for about three hours and I was coming down and I was about an hour walk back down and there was nobody around because it was January and there were two push trees over the path on the way up. But I, I knew there'd been high winds, you know, the, the day before. So I thought, well, there you go, you know, high winds. And as I was walking back down, I was photographing these waterfalls and things. I was almost certain for a second that I saw like a, a human figure about a hundred feet away up the hill dark behind a tree, but it was one of those corner of the eye things. You're like a millisecond as a well. You can't that's not anything. That's just you looking up suddenly. But something made me think, look up now. And I did. And after that I had this deep set fear that like, you've got to get out of the forest. And I knew there was a big dark pit to walk through. And all the way down I was telling myself, you're a guy up in the hills looking for monsters, and now you've had, you know, like a corner of the eye sighting, and you're freaking yourself out. This is all that is happening here. But even though I rationalized it, the fear that I must move away from here and get out of this section that was very real until I came into this, it wasn't a clearing, but it was like a different type of tree, and I knew I was only half an hour away, and then it just dropped away out of nowhere. And that, to me, I always have to wait there. After, well especially with foreknowledge, you know, as your ex-colleague uh, Renee would say, Bigfoot on the brain, you know, um, is that something that I've made myself feel because I know the genre or is it something that happened to me against my best efforts to say, to stay calm? So it's, it's, it's interesting. I don't really know how to classify it. Yeah. It, I, I mean, I've had so many things that were, that's why like when I had my only daylight glimpse, if monkey hadn't been so alerted to it because it was just there and gone, it was so fast. Like I've had, I've had, I mean, we've all had things like that where like you catch a glimpse out of like you're turning your head, you catch yeah. a glimpse yeah. and a flash or something. And so I, I, I always discount that. Like every, I never, cause I've had it happen so many times. Same. Yeah. Same. And then, but this time when I, when it happened, I walked over, there was this huge stink where the thing had been standing. Huh. I mean, like eye burning. And then I, tracked it up where it went and i could hear it climbing up this cliff and there was okay you know stuff rolling down but if 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 i didn't smell it and then and then find this giant bigfoot path up and that was the thing about it was where i saw it i'd walk that old decommissioned logging road so many times and always look down into the creek on the left because that's where you know and then on the right it was just a thin strip of trees and brush and then a dirt cliff that went up to the road above and you know, there's i just never even looked to that side because there's there's not you know it's just some bushes and trees like for about 30 feet and then you go to the cliff base and the thing had, there had been a four foot wide like nine foot tall trail right there that was obviously years old that came down and 
that's where it went up right there. And like, I'd never even noticed that thing before. And it was right there in plain sight. And no, and no one else, and my other Bigfoot buddies around there had never noticed it either until I pointed it out to them. They're like, oh my God, it was right in front of us the whole time. Huh. And it was where they could come down, that trail came down, they could come down and spy on our campground from you know, a couple hundred yards away and keep an eye on everything and then disappear right back up and no one even looked over there. I, I guess it's interesting. You had to see that, that, that movement. You had to follow that path of the creature to, to, to see it. I, I was, um, you know, you've got a lot of experience in this area. For me, really, I've only been, uh, as I mockingly call it, a career cryptozoologist for the last three years. You know, I basically decided to write a book and took it too seriously. That's what my wife says. Huh. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was just working in London before that and doing the whole thing. So I think with these things, I always think the same thing about game cams too and trails and whatnot. You know, they, the forest, the woods, it's their backyard, it's their living room. It's their living room. So if you come in and you change something, you know, it's noticeable to them. That's why they see the game cams. Because you know, if you come into my house and you change one book on the shelf, they may all be books, but I notice that one of them is different because it's my house, right? Right. So I think it's, a, it's the same for them. Same with trails, you know, it, things that seem obvious. Uh, to a creature like that, I think would seem quite um, quite hidden to us too. Now, this question I ask everybody, by the way, well, moving on. Um, if money was no object uh, and you could go anywhere you wanted, what cryptid would you like to look for? In what location? And um, and what two researchers would you take with you? It can be anybody, living or dead. And this is like unlimited Fiction. budget. Unlimited budget. Uh, any location in the world, any cryptid. Any two researchers to go with you from you know past and present? Um, I would go to uh, well, there's a few places. I, I mean, how long do I have? <laughs> uh, uh, you can stay there for as long as you like. But uh, can, can I move around? Sure, I would, I would do it. <laughs> I would do two weeks, two weeks down the Amazon where we found oh. a place about 1100 miles up the Amazon where the Mapanguari, the Bigfoot one, because uh. it seems like there's two things there: Mapanguari and Mapanguari. One, they, they get and they get even the locals mix them up and kind of mishmash them together. But it seems that there's like a giant sloth, brown sloth, uh -huh. that's still living down in there, and then also like a Bigfoot type, you know, bipedal hominid. And I, they see it. One week either side of the summer and winter solstices, so in January and December. And it's seen, it, for a couple nights, it comes down and roars and screams and walks back and forth in this ridge. So I would do that for those two weeks. Then um, I would go back to Nepal to where uh, I heard the vocal, the one vocalizing when the rainstorm hit. Wow. I'd go to that spot. And then for North American Bigfoot, there's... Uh, I'd probably find I would try to find the best habituation site, like where there's total repeat activity, and not really probably somewhere in the Pacific Northwest where it's just such thick, you know. That preferably be a good wintertime spot that um, has you know, like where they're visiting a farm, farmhouse, whatever, like or you know, it has something has a lot of outbuildings and a lot of animals and mm. barns and pens where. Um, 
they because they can detect the electronics. So you, there's got to be uh-huh. pre-existing electronics. I mean, because people see them walking around like power lines all the time. It's so like, you know, they're, they're used to being around ele- electrical fields and that sort of stuff. Uh-huh. But there's, well, you're bringing up the game camp, uh, like how that doesn't seem so effective with the Bigfoots. Yeah. And we, uh, our, well, Cliff and I have a podcast coming out probably next month that we're going to start releasing it. We've been working on it and you're going to be on it here pretty soon yeah yeah i hope so i'd love to do that well we we just had a potentially big breakthrough in um we're gonna we're waiting to talk to the guy now we uh he works for the department of defense but it's about um game cameras and how they are how animals sense them and mm-hmm. this guy's theories on it, and I think it's going to really have a huge impact on Bigfoot research. But anyways, yeah, putting putting cameras out. I think I've always I've said this for years and years and years. Find a spot like that. Have the uh, have very small cameras, little little tiny spy cameras stuck in a few different, you know, mm-hmm. like all over the place. Um, and you know, just lay low. Don't even turn them on for a while. Like, Get them, get them put in, but I wouldn't uh, even. I'd let them sit for a while, like months and habituated. months. Yeah, yeah, and then then turn them on. But uh, yeah, I'd find a great habituation spot and somewhere that's not. It's, you know, it's not like Washington Olympic Peninsula where I love to go. But it's it's like it's just a wall to wall rainforest jungle. You know, you yeah. can't see ten feet into the brush. Yeah, you know, I'd be looking somewhere like East Washington, East Oregon, out in the high desert. Or a great spots the four corners, uh-huh. or up in like a, that a Tennessee, uh, West Virginia, Kentucky area in the wintertime when all those deciduous trees have lost their leaves. And it's a lot more bleak. And then also, you're not dealing with all these, in the summertime, you're dealing with glowing hot objects like rocks and stumps and decaying stumps that you know, look yeah. like animals are glowing so hot. You know, it, it's, it's, you, you see, if, if there's rocks exposed in the in the summer, you just use, they'll have to. Oh, they retain the heat for hours afterwards after night. Right, of course. See, yeah. So I'd, I'd want a wintertime spot that's not heavily wooded, mm. like um, maybe like in the Dakotas with the the that's Sioux great. tribes. Yeah, I'd do because something like that. Because they come right up. They come right up to towns, right? Oh yeah, especially the natives, especially the Indian communities. Mm. Why do you think that is, actually? I know we've got to finish up soon, but there does seem to be a phenomenon of them uh, not being more of these, but at least being uh, more free about the way they move about in some of the uh, First Nations uh, areas. Well, why do you think that is? A, because a lot of the tribes won't shoot at them. Uh-huh. That's part of it. I think that's a huge part of it. And uh, they've just always been there. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's the fact that they but there's other tribes that will shoot at them all. Like the Apaches will try to kill them. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the tribes up north they'll they'll shoot at them. They'll they'll take shots at them. So I think, and that's just what I've seen in national parks too. Yeah, there there's no hunting in there. So I'm guessing it's really it's just about their local areas that they're used to being free to move around and it's experience, just experience, probably right. past and in some way. And finally, we do have to go, but um, 
the end of finding Bigfoot, you know, sadly missed. Um, and I know you did your time with that, you know, and it, it was great for what it was. Uh, apart from the podcast, which I'm really looking forward to listening to with you and Cliff, are there any other TV projects coming up that we can look out for? Um, nothing. And I'm talking to a few different people about different stuff. Uh, one's like a total is cryptozoology stuff all the way around. And they they're, uh, they deal with shapeshifters a lot and forms they take, like would be dealing with Dogman and uh, there'd be some Sasquatch. It'd be a kind of a mix of stuff. It seems that just straight uh, Moneymaker's got a straight Bigfoot show going to be coming out. He's going to announce that next month, which I'm excited about that one. His is his is going to be great. They got a uh, they're going to be using high new high end drones with thermal oh, wow. imagers. Yeah, that's like that's great. See, I think you're talking about having this imaginary budget of unlimited resources. Yes, I, I'd have a drone fleet. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'd be going. I'd, I'd have the vehicles with the R2D2 units on top, where you know those pan tilt rotating cameras. Oh yeah. Um, I'd have guys in the out on foot with handheld thermals. But um, I think everything. Yeah, I mean, I. I'd go all out, and you'd, you'd get them. I think I think you really could, because I've seen them, and if I had the right equipment, I could have filmed them. So I I I I don't I know a lot of people think it's a waste of time trying to film them. They're like, oh, they're paranormal. You're not going to film. Like I don't agree with that. I think no, we're going to get them on film because I've I've seen them on thermal imager. I know what they look like on thermal. I always so. think that this comment about the Kraken, you know, when you go to a museum these days and you see a, a giant squid in formaldehyde somewhere, that was the Kraken for thousands of years. Right. Here it is, you know, 20, 30, 40 feet long in your museum, and you walk past it and go, oh, Kraken, right? Maybe Bigfoot will be like that in the future, or, you know, like monsters, or, or whatever we end up finding. We have found some large animals. We found the okapi. That was not so long back, not really. Right. Um, and that's a pretty big creature to be missing, you know, for all this time. Uh, and that was something we knew nothing about, you know. It was definitely known, but it, was, it wasn't some lost creature like perhaps some of the late monsters may be and, or some creature we've never truly discovered. Like, my money's more on the Gigantopithecus theory. I know other people have other theories. I'm not an expert on, on that side of things. I think it's all out there. And just it's just the fact that science, that no true scientific study has been applied to it, you know, as we would right. to any other acknowledged species that we were looking for. And, um, you know, I think it would be great to get that kind of support at, at some point in the future. But well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump off here. It's been awesome. Awesome to have you on and, and pick your brain about all of the things I wanted to know um, for all this time. And I hope people have enjoyed it too. And um, and where's the best place to find you? If people want to find you online and look at what you're doing, where can they go? Uh, on Facebook, um, James Bobo Fay, uh, hyphen Finding Bigfoot. And then also I'm at Squatcher on Twitter, but I don't do that too much. Oh, uh, well, that sounds... That sounds absolutely awesome. I advise everybody listening to go and find Bobo there and and uh, and follow and and like and um and get involved in the podcast when it comes out because I think that's going to be absolutely awesome. And thank you for coming on the show. 
I wish I was more coherent for you, Andy, but thanks for having me. Well, you were very coherent, and uh, thanks for making making your way through my mumbly, sort of stumbly English accent as well. You know, you did really well with it. <laughs> right on, man. <laughs> see you soon, we'll Billy. See- yes, thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.